0: Welcome friends, it's great to have you with us for the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm, a weekly podcast that brings biblical teaching to everyday people in ways we can understand and then put into practice. My name is Gwenda Selman. and it is my privilege to be your host for this time together. Our teacher is Dave DeSelm. Dave spent over 40 years in pastoral ministry, planting, growing, and leading a church. Currently, he is the executive director of Dave DeSelm Ministries, offering resources for everyday pastors and the people they lead, such as a blog, devotionals, individual and group coaching, speaking, and more. You can find out more about us at davedeselmministries.org. One of the most common buzzwords in the church these days is discipleship, being and making disciples. And that's a hugely important thing. I mean, that is what Jesus' Great Commission was all about, right? Go and make disciples. But I think for some of us, there's some confusion about what that really means. I mean, what is a disciple? And how do I know if I'm making progress in my discipleship? See, being a disciple is about more than sin management or biblical knowledge— It's not about how often you read the Bible or go to church, although all of those are really good things. Being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, involves becoming more and more like Him in our character. And that's what this message is all about. What are some of the character qualities that should be developing in the life of an everyday disciple? Let's join Dave now for this great word from Ephesians chapter 4.
1: Let's take our Bibles in hand, shall we, and open them up to the New Testament book of Ephesians. As so we consider once more this idea of what does it mean to be everyday saints? Some of us came out of traditions where the saints were paintings on a wall or statues in a funeral home. But could it be that garden variety, ordinary believers, can be saints? And indeed, that's what Paul calls these folks, and that's what he calls us today, saints. Once again, yesterday I had the privilege of leading a membership seminar I talked with the folks who were considering becoming official part of the FMC family, and I spoke about our past, I shared about our visions in the present, I shared about where we hope to go in the future. And as I wrapped up the talk to them, I told them, we'd love you to join our ranks, but there's a covenant that you need to commit to. That is to say, we're not offering, only offering something to our members, we're asking for something from our members, And I told them I was asking for their commitment, for their cooperation, and for their contribution. That we expect our members to be committed to this place. We expect our leaders to cooperate with the leaders of this place. And we expect our leaders to contribute freely, graciously, generously to this place. Beyond that, though, I added two other aspects of covenant that I thought were really important. I said, I'm asking this of you. I will strive to lead a God-honoring life, characterized by godliness and the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I said, this is what I'm going to ask of you. We're not all perfect, but this is our goal. This is where we're headed. These are the kind of people we want to be. And I shared this with them as well. I will endeavor to be loyal to FMC and build unity by encouraging when I can and confronting when I must. I said it's going to be very important as you join our ever-growing ranks to recognize that it's not simply that we follow a vision. It's not simply that we join in a ministry, that we encourage our leaders. It's going to be important to consider how do we treat each other? How do we treat each other along the way? And that's what I shared with them. You see, when you join an organization, is it not true you join not only the organization, but you commit yourself to those people. You say, I want to be loyal to those people, and I want to make sure that I represent them well. Those of you who are in the Marine Corps know that well. Marines, in fact, I had a guy first service who said I almost went hoorah after that. But Marines, you determine if you're a Marine. I will be loyal to my fellow Marines, and I will promote and represent the Corps well. You join a philanthropic organization, and you're saying, in effect, I will uphold the club's standards, promote its goals, and represent it well. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this beautiful thing called the church that you're a part of when you embrace Christ, God becomes your father, you've got brothers and sisters. How you treat them is a reflection on how you're representing your father, and this beautiful thing called the church. So he gives us some instruction in that fourth chapter. You found it? Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to show you with, share with you the first six verses. And I'm really going to be interactive this morning, so get a writing utensil. You're going to be doing some self-assessment in the next 20 minutes, if you would. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Noting at verse 1 there, let me read it to you again as prisoner for the Lord. That's how the NIV renders it. I think I like even more how the New American Standard sh- puts it. Take a look at this. Let's read this out loud and together, shall we? Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Looking at this, glance back down at your Bible, because of you have the NIV. Notice a shift in prepositions here. The NIV says a prisoner for the Lord. This says a prisoner of the Lord. The Greek allows for both. So, what does he mean when he says a prisoner for the Lord? I think he's saying, in effect, if you hope to walk worthy, it's going to cost you something at times. It's going to cost you something. Paul was writing this while under arrest, and he recognized that the consistency of his walk resulted in being arrested. He said, if you're going to walk this way, it may well cost you. And I think that's a fair rendering of the the text. But I like even more that aspect of the Lord. Let's run it up there again. See the prisoner of the Lord. What's that mean? What's he mean by that? I think he's saying, because typically we talk about if you're a prisoner of something, it's negative, right? He's saying, I've been utterly captivated by Jesus. Jesus has captured my heart. I'm truly a prisoner, not simply for the Lord, but of the Lord. As such, to Paul's way of thinking, his motives were Christ. His standards were Christ. His objectives were Christ. His vision was Christ. Everything he thought, planned, and did went through the filter, will this honor Christ? He was captivated by him. Can you imagine if you would use that grid Wherever you go this week, in your home, at your school, on the job, in this church, if you would filter yourself by those three questions, how would these words reflect on Jesus? And think about it. Think before you spoke a word, you would ask, if I say this, how I say this, how will it reflect on Christ? Christ. Or second, how would this action, if if I do this, how will this reflect on Jesus? How will this impact my children? What will this say to my coworkers if I do this? And third, how can I most honor him in this? When difficulties arise, when challenges are posed, When suffering hits you hard, how can I honor Christ in this? How can I honor Christ in this? Can you imagine living like that this week? Will those words honor him? Will those actions honor him? Will my response in this situation honor him? This is what it means to be captured by Christ This is how Paul lived. Unless you think this is merely a suggestion, do you see that word there in that first line? As a prisoner for the Lord, then I, what's the next word? Urge. Very strong in the original language. It means literally to beg. I beg you. This is important, guys. This is really important. That's what he's saying to them. So, to walk worthy. What then are the characteristics of a worthy walk? How do we unpack this in practical ways? The apostle gives us several ways to look at ourselves, and I'm going to give you that opportunity this morning. The first way is to consider our humility. Verse 2, be completely humble. You see that? The Greek word means to think or judge with lowliness. To consider yourself as less In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, this was totally foreign. Nobody would ever see themselves as less. The society was highly hierarchical, slaves all the way up to citizens and beyond to royalty. You always sought to elevate yourself, always. You would never seek to live beneath yourself and yet, This is what humility is. Where did Paul get this idea then of humility? He got it from his Savior. Jesus turned this value upside down. Though he was the very son of God, he chose to elevate others. Though he deserved to be served, he chose to serve. Nowhere is it seen more clearly in one of the most astounding sections of Scripture in all the gospel accounts. Most of you are familiar with this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he'd come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking the towel, he girded himself, and he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash the disciples. Why did Jesus have to do that? Because nobody else would. The one who washed the feet, even the pecking order among slaves, was the lowest of all the slaves. Can you imagine the 12 walking into that upper room? There's the basin. There's the towel. There's no slave. And one by one, Peter, I ain't doing it. James, Mm -mm. John, not me. Matthew, Thomas, all walk by. And Jesus gets up, takes off his robe, wraps a towel around himself, and chooses to wash their feet, to serve them at the lowest possible level. By the way, In the timing of the evening, who was still in the room at that time who would shortly thereafter leave? Judas. You ever thought about the fact he washed Judas' feet? This is what it means to walk in a worthy way. This humility I love the way, though, it says in that text, watch this. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. See, he knew who he was. And that he'd come from God and was going back to God. See, when you know who you are, when you know you're secure with the Father, you can dare to give of yourself. Because after all, if your Father loves you, who cares? In light of who he was, he chose to serve Now we can give a definition for you. Humility. Humility, I see it as the attitude of the heart that recognizes God's love for and value of others and is willing to put their needs first. So here's a question for you. In your home, guys, we tout ourselves as the head of our homes, right? Literally, it means you're the head servant. Are you the one who seeks to serve or be served? You say, well, I don't wash feet. I need to wash the dishes. Do you wash the laundry? I don't do that kind of stuff. Maybe that's the problem. You don't do that kind of stuff. Just thinking. What would it look like if in your home you went that way? What would it be like in the school if you were the one who did that? In your neighborhood, in your office, your shop? So here's a question for you. If you were to assess your humility quotient, if 10 is Jesus, and one is far from Jesus, I want you to pencil out right now, or pen, and put a number next to the word humility you wrote there. No fives allowed. No fives allowed. In your home, at your school, in this church, your servanthood, your humility, how would you grade yourself? No one's going to see this but you and God. How would you grade yourself?
0: You're listening to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. Dave will continue his message in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and then help others find us by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. If you'd like to support us in this ministry, just go to davedeselmministries.org and click on the Donate button. Well, Dave and I are excited about what God is doing with Dave DeSelm Ministries, and we'd like to invite you to follow us on that journey by signing up to receive our weekly update. Get the latest DDM news and a personal word from Dave sent to your email inbox each Monday morning. You can subscribe to the weekly update on our website, davedeselmministries.org. Now, let's return to Dave and the rest of today's teaching.
1: Second characteristic, same verse. uh, Humble and gentle. See the word gentle? Uh, Literally in the Greek, it means meekness. Now, most of us, we think of the word meekness, we think of weakness. But in the original language, it was far from that. It did not speak of timidity or cowardice in any way. Meekness is better defined as power under control. As a horse that has been trained to respond to its master, loses none of its strength and none of its speed, but is totally under control to serve the best. This is meekness. In this case, I think the apostle is saying this, it's choosing to not power up when you could power up. Or, the idea of you so determined to get your way, that you will become argumentative and combative and even harsh. You say, wait a minute, these are worthy goals. We're pursuing worthy goals. It's worth anything. Seems to me that it says of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29, that he's gentle and humble in spirit. He's gentle and humble in spirit. And as such, I think we need to understand that gentleness is defined this way. The spirit of one who is not only committed to worthy goals, but displays graciousness in the pursuit of those goals. Would that describe you? Would that describe you in your home? She's so gracious. He's so kind. She's so gentle. Would that describe you in your job, at your school? Would that describe you in committee meetings? He's not argumentative. She's not combative. Loves the goal, but boy, how How he gets there, the means is as important as the ends. Jesus, learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in spirit. No one was ever more committed to the goal than Jesus, and no one was ever more gentle in getting there. That's a worthy walk. Once more, assessment time. Ready? If 10 is Jesus and one is far from Jesus... How are you as it relates to being argumentative, combative, and even harsh as it relates to pursuing what you think are good goals? Assess yourself. How are you doing so far? We're not done. He notes the number one, again in verse two, be completely humble, gentle. Then he says, be patient, be patient. Patience is defined this way, or look, look at it this way. Slowness in avenging wrong or retaliation. Be slow to retaliate. Again, this was foreign to the Greco-Roman world. Aristotle said, The greatest virtue is to refuse to tolerate any insult and a readiness to strike back with vengeance. It's all new, but that's not the way of Jesus. I define patience this way, the response of long-suffering towards hurtful people. Responding without vengeance or retaliation when hurt. How do you do that? I think one of the greatest commentaries on that is written by Peter, who softly, obviously saw Jesus live this way. Look what Peter wrote regarding that. He said, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. How was Jesus able to not retaliate? Because he knew that one day his father would make everything right. One day he would be vindicated. And he chose to wait for his father to work in the situation and the people and to hold back on his immediate reaction. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. This is what it means to walk worthy. When you're hurt, and you will be. When you're dinged, and you will be. To recognize, I will not retaliate. I will not return threat for threat. I will trust myself to the one who sees this and will respond rightly. Assessment time. If 10 is Jesus and one is far from Jesus, how do you respond when you get dinged? When someone hurts you? Hurt for hurt? Hate for hate? Word for word? Punch for punch? Or do you dare to trust yourself that one day your father will make this right and you will opt for the way of Jesus? I got one more for you. Fourth characteristic still from that second verse. Humble and gentle. Patient. Then notice the word bearing with one another. This is a little bit different than the patience of the word before. Call this word forbearance. The Greek word means to overlook. The idea is that when somebody is weak, When somebody consistently falls in an area, that you cut them slack. That you choose to forbear. Paul wrote these words regarding this in Romans 15.1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. See, here's the deal for me. I find it so easy easy to condemn those who are weak in areas where I'm strong. I shake my head. Man, why can't they change? Why can't they do this? And I'm so easy to condemn and judge but when it's my area where I consistently struggle, I want them to give me grace. Bit inconsistent, wouldn't you say? The apostle says a worthy walk is where you cut people slack. Love does cover a multitude of sins. Are you willing to bear with those who are weaker than you and to give them a bit of grace? Forbearance then defined the capacity to bear with another's weakness. Ignorance or shortcomings. Why? Knowing that we have our own. I'm going to forbear. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to offer grace. Assessment time. If 10 is Jesus, and if one is far from Jesus, how are you as it relates to your response to those who are weak around you? to those who stumble, to those who fail, to those who struggle. Do you forbear? Are you gracious? Or do you power up? It's interesting how these things are woven together. Humility gives birth to gentleness. Gentleness leads to patience. Patience results in forbearance. And all of these preserve the bond of peace that it says in verse 3. Verse 3, make every effort... To keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Every effort. The Greek participle here is very strong. Zealous effort. Great care. What's he saying? Come on, guys. We're in the same family. We've got the same father. Be humble. Be gracious. Be patient. Be kind. Make every effort to walk worthy. Because a world is watching. Walk worthy. Walkworthy. And then he concludes in verses four to six. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. See, here's what I know. We come into the family of God as individuals, don't we? But we don't walk in isolation. We walk with others. How worthy is your walk? As your father looks at you and how you treat your brothers and sisters, do you walk worthy or do you walk unworthy? I urge you, Paul says, I urge you. Walk worthy. The stakes are high. People are watching. Walk worthy.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. If you'd like to let Pastor Dave know how this message has blessed you, send him an email at dave at davedeselmministries.org. Then join us next time as we look to God's Word for help and hope as we follow Jesus every day.